We live in a time of great uncertainty as the COVID-19 pandemic unfolds. We're three weeks in, and we're getting used to not knowing exactly what is going to happen. Virginia is under a stay-at-home order, but the fact that it came so late has some thinking it has not been enough to fully contain the virus. We're seeing more community spread, as well as we're seeing increasing outbreaks in nursing homes, in institutional settings. Virginia is preparing for a wave of hospitalizations as more people become ill with a virus that is new to humanity. A massive public-private mobilization is underway. We currently expect that will be sometime between late April and late May. Every day brings new data and new information about Albemarle, Charlottesville, and Virginia as they prepare for a new reality in which we face an immediate public health threat as well as an economic recovery that will be difficult. We will reduce our budget, reduce our, our spending by about $3 million. On this installment of this podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic in Charlottesville, we take a look at what the pandemic means for Albemarle's budget. But first, we'll hear from the most recent briefing from Governor Ralph Northam and his administration. It's April 3rd, 2020. I'm Sean Tubbs. The number of cases rose on April 2nd by another 222 cases to a cumulative total of 1,706. That's up from one on March 7th, the first day a case was confirmed. There are now a reported 41 deaths from COVID-19. How high will those numbers go? The more of us who can manage to limit our contact with other people, the lower they could be, the lower they will be. These decisions in Virginia are being informed by a number of epidemiological models that plot out the number of projected cases and the projected number of hospitalizations. These are still being further refined as more data comes in day to day. Here's Dr. Norm Oliver, the state's health commissioner. We will in um, just uh, a few days be able, I think, to present a model that has Virginia-specific data, which will therefore be a much more accurate uh, projection on what we can expect here in the Commonwealth, and we'll report on that when that uh, becomes fully operational. On April 1st, Governor Ralph Northam had updates on Virginia's readiness for new field hospitals, as well as the availability of personal protective equipment, or PPE. But Northam was clear that he wanted Virginians to be realistic in their expectations. You need to know the truth. No sugarcoating. I know this is hard. People are isolated. You're worried. And many of you are out of work. My strategy has always been to plan for the worst and to hope for the best. Northam said we should be prepared to go through this crisis for months, not weeks. While we continue to examine the available models about when Virginia's cases will surge, we currently expect that will be sometime between late April and late May. Even though it has been over three weeks now since Northam declared a state of emergency, he said the crisis is still just beginning. If we can all stay home, we don't give the virus the chance to infect the next person. We slow it down. To expand on this just a bit, the virus can't live by itself. It needs people like you and me referred to as host for it to survive and to spread. So what we are talking about is making it as difficult as possible 
for the virus to latch on to a host. On April 1st, Northam had news on the Army Corps of Engineers' work to find locations for field hospitals across Virginia. Two confirmed sites are the Hampton Roads Convention Center and an ExxonMobil property in Fairfax. An unidentified site in Richmond is also in the running. Northam did not mention this, but the University of Virginia Medical Center will go ahead and open up space in their new tower early to deal with the overload. I hope to hear more on UVA's response in the near future. For now, Northam said Virginia is getting ready. But make no mistake, we are preparing for the people who will get sick. One of the primary needs is for more personal protective equipment, or PPE. Northam said that this week, Virginia received a third shipment of gowns, masks, and other equipment from the national stockpile, but he said more is needed. Some manufacturers around the state are working to retool their assembly lines. During the question-and-answer period at the April 1st briefing, one reporter asked this question. When you say that we still need more, how much more do we need specifically, and where are we seeing the biggest shortages? The question is how much PPE do we need? We need as much as we can get, bottom line. Uh, there's no such thing as too much right now, and, and what has prompted that uh, is, uh, as we have said every day, and, and I speak on behalf of all of our governors, um, we're competing with each other. We're competing with other countries. We're, we're competing with other states. And, and so while uh, individuals have stepped up, businesses have stepped up, people are making things, uh, manufacturing PPEs uh, right here in Virginia, uh, we still uh, we lack in the total number we need. And I, as I, I mentioned, Kate, uh, uh, a few conferences ago, uh, an ICU patient who is in isolation uh, so many individuals have to, to visit to care for that patient, and we just literally burn through PPE uh, to the tune of maybe 240 sets of PPE per patient a day. So you multiply that, uh, as, uh, as was said earlier, the number of individuals we have in hospitals now, the, the number of individuals that are in ICUs that are on ventilators, it just you go through a lot of PPE. The financial damage felt by individuals, organizations, and governments is becoming real. April 1st was the day that rent or mortgage payments were due across Virginia. And for many Virginians, that comes just after they are being laid off or furloughed due to this pandemic. I encourage all of those Virginians to apply for unemployment. That will at least provide some help. For those who have federal mortgage loans, through the Virginia Housing Department Authority, we're deferring loan payments for up to three months if people need it. We're also suspending evictions for anyone with public housing vouchers. Since March 16th, Virginia has been under a judicial emergency. That means that evictions cannot happen until at least April 26th. Virginia is seeking ways to finance places for homeless individuals throughout the state. There's a lot going on to help people, and more resources are coming as more information is known. Virginia has been criticized for the number of tests available, but remember, this is a new virus that the medical community is responding to in real time. Here's Denise Tony, the head of the state labs, speaking on April 1st. Prior to this week, we were processing or had at capacity to run about 100 patients a day with reporting out those results same day, and now we have doubled that capacity, which came timely in the fact that we're seeing more community spread as well as we're seeing increasing outbreaks in nursing homes, 
in institutional settings and in other communities. And so our ability to process double the number of patients in a day allows public health to respond more rapidly to those outbreak and emerging disease situations. At the end of his remarks on April 1st, Governor Northam remarked that many people are still not practicing social distancing to slow the spread, but he thanked those who are. Let's listen. To all of you out there that are, I say thank you. We have frontline workers, from our medical staff to our grocery workers, to the folks in our school divisions delivering food to students who are working every day to help other people. We have people sewing masks, signing up for our volunteer medical corps, looking for ways to help out. We had people in Northern Virginia who raised money to buy laptops for students, and they donated those with hotspots and prepaid cards to get internet access to students all the way on the other side of the Commonwealth in Bristol. I can't tell you enough, Virginia, how much we appreciate everyone who is stepping up. If all you're doing is staying home, that in of itself is a contribution, and I thank you. We are all in this together. You're listening to a podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic in Charlottesville. If you need help or can help, please visit supportseville.com for information and resources. One of their campaigns is Equip Seville, which seeks to gather additional medical supplies and PPE for local healthcare providers. There's great work being done out there, and maybe you can help. Visit supportseville.com for more information. That's supportseville.com. April 1st was the beginning of the fourth quarter of the current fiscal year, which ends on June 30th. The crisis hits at a time when most local governments around Virginia have not adopted their budget for the next fiscal year. Existing budgets will also have to be amended to reflect revenues that aren't going to come in. Sales tax, meals tax, lodging tax. These are significant sources of funding for our community. In Virginia, local governments are extensions of the state government, and legislation to address the crisis will likely come through the General Assembly when they convene later in the month on April 22nd. That's when they're scheduled at least to come back. Aubrey Lane is Virginia's finance secretary. State revenue streams are also down. He has been working with the rest of the Northam administration on preparing for the hospital surge. He has heard the call from some merchants for delays in the payment of taxes. Many of those taxes go to those localities. So on the other side of that, we're getting the request from them, please don't delay anymore because we need that money here. Something like this has not happened before in our lifetimes. There's a lot we don't yet know about government budgets and what they're going to look like, but each of us have new bills that come in every day alongside the new numbers. The administration, though, is tackling the public health side first. It's an uh, unprecedented event. Uh, The governor has always said that it was going to be public health. We had to get that right, and then we have an economic crisis on the other side. However, Lane said Virginia's budgets and localities' budgets must be balanced. They cannot print money like the federal government can. For the last three months, we are looking at uh, 
what I think is the, the worst case scenario for the final three months. That's Albemarle County Executive Jeffrey Richardson speaking at the very first ever virtual meeting of the Albemarle Board of Supervisors on April 1st. We'll hear more from Richardson in a moment, but let's review a couple of the other parts of the meeting. Here's Chair Ned Galloway. We've done a trial and practice run, um, so we do ask for patience um, if we encounter any flaws as we continue to learn this format and get better at it for the meetings to come. Um, at this time, board, for, um, for purposes of staying with the protocol for our meetings, we would like to do the Pledge of Allegiance. So if everyone would please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And here's how that sounds on a Zoom call. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the, flag of the United States, States of America. Of America. And, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, indivisible with, liberty with liberty and justice, justice for all. This virtual meeting was a lot like a normal one in many ways. If you don't follow local government meetings often, one item is called the consent agenda, which is a list of items that supervisors vote on without a discussion. However, those items can be pulled if somebody wants to bring it up. One of these at the April 1st meeting was the renewal of an agreement between the county and Lee Enterprises for the use of 21 parking spaces at the Daily Progress for the Northside Library. Albemarle pays just over $15,000 a year for this purpose, and the contract was up for renewal. Supervisor Donna Price questioned if the county should proceed at this time. It's only $15,000. I recognize that. Um, but there's a But both of these two items on the agenda collectively, I think, are things that we need to look at in the sense of what type of business operation are we going to go forward with based upon what I believe is going to be a very significantly changed um, financial situation for us with reduced revenues. What do we do? How do we spend our money on things that may not necessarily at this point in time be seen as essential services? However, Supervisor Ann Malik said the spaces are critical for library operations. No, I, while I understand the concern, I, I am also concerned that if that I don't want these spaces to get away. But the library without those spaces is, is very has a very difficult time operating. Now, in a minute, we're going to hear a little bit more about the budget directly. But Jeff Richardson explained why he recommended moving forward with this renewal. Uh, we're looking at a one-year extension here. This, this represents a significant amount of parking at our busiest branch in Albemarle County. If I were working at this moment on closing the gap in the current fiscal year, I would, I would not recommend using one-time money, $5,000, to address the, the, the shortfall that we've got due to the revenue uh, loss in the last three months. We would be looking at much bigger uh, pots of money that make a much bigger impact. Also on the consent agenda was a resolution to waive rents for tenants of five county-owned buildings for the months of April and May. Three out of the five are nonprofits. Price said she recognizes the potential pain that businesses and nonprofits both have in terms of making ends meet during this crisis. She was just concerned the action was premature. So my biggest concern for this item is us taking action today to waive rents before I believe a sufficient factual basis has been provided to the county to show that any other action or opportunities have been attempted and exhausted. 
And then I take that and I say, how do we then look at the action that we take here as it may relate to other residents or citizens in the county later on when property tax bills come due and things like that? Supervisors opted to wait for now on action on rents, but Supervisor Malik said two of the tenants are arts organizations that have used their resources and fundraising capacity to maintain those buildings, relieving a financial burden for Albemarle. Supervisor B. Lepisto curtly said she understood that argument, but thought it would be better to wait a month before making that decision. Uh, the hard calls. We're now making the hard decisions. Uh, for me, it's it's public safety, health, education, and we're, that we're making hard calls, and it is hard. All right. So, if I'm understanding, there seems to be consensus that we can defer action on this item until the May meeting. Each of us is facing major changes in our lives as a result of this COVID-19 crisis. It's refreshing to me to see the same arguments that happen in regular meetings also happen in these new meetings. Our elected officials should disagree on the details of local policy. Debate leads to better outcomes, and you as the citizens should listen, and it'll help you understand the nuances here. But we're in times when the COVID-19 crisis will transform the ability of local governments to pay for services. This is going to impact your life. Even while we wait to find out how the pandemic plays out in terms of the medical system, the financial crisis is a real shock to municipalities. Richardson said that Albemarle is assuming a worst-case scenario in terms of financial drivers. In the last three months of this fiscal year, the adjustments that the staff will make on the general government, local government, is right at $3 million. We will reduce, we will reduce our budget, reduce our, our spending by about $3 million over the last three months. The school system will need to cut spending in the current year by about $2.6 million. Where those cuts come from is not yet known. Richardson and staff from the school system are meeting this morning, April 3rd, to figure out a way forward. Our staff is in the process of evaluating all discretionary spending for the final three months. Uh, This will include a thorough review of vacant positions that are in the organization. We we are prepared and will take steps to freeze positions in the organization between now and the end of the year. uh, And and that will generate savings uh, that will begin to close that gap. Before the pandemic, Albemarle was in the middle of completing the budget for fiscal year 21. That document is now a relic of history, as the process will need to start again, based on whatever the new budget is for the current year. Be mindful that the fiscal year 21 budget that was was originally handed to you in February had all of the revenue projections for 21, this now takes all of that away, and it adjusts it downward. Richardson estimated that an additional $2.5 million will need to be cut from next year's general government budget. Schools will have to reduce by about $3.38 million, and another $850,000 will be reduced from the capital program. Richard said he will recommend a new budget sometime after the public hearing on April 13th on the tax rate. The goal is to adopt the new budget for fiscal year 21 on May 14th. That's six weeks away from now. All sorts of new numbers will be out by then. As we get more time to look at the economy in in the post-July timeframe, that we're looking at the economy and we're going to know a lot more about whether there's been structural damage to the economy. We'll know more then than we know now. 
Galloway reflected that even if things were to somehow magically go back to normal, this experience is showing that local governments may be able to find new efficiencies by embracing new technology. I think in times like this, obviously, that when we start finding other ways to operate or we're looking for places to go, I just want to call out that we have had as part of our um, philosophy the last year and the current fiscal year, we have business process optimization and funding in there. We're all finding efficiencies when you're forced to do things in a different way. Just meeting virtually, how many times with different buildings do we have staff moving around town to meet in person when they really could have been meeting virtually anyway, that this crisis has made us meet virtually. I know that's not a significant amount of savings, but that does reflect in fuel and vehicle use and just people's time. Finally, on this episode, let's return to filmmaker Eduardo Montes Bradley, an Ivy resident who contributed to the March 21st edition of this program. These days, many of us don't quite know what day it is. We look to a future where some of these numbers are going to be grim. For now, there's just the present. We seem to be stimulated to live in a constant present. The past has never been further and the future never as foggy or unattainable. My cat also lives in the constant present. For Kate, there's no past or future, just the immediate self. And one great attribute about living in that constant present is the ability to manage time to our discretion. Time in the present seems not to flow as it used to. The coronavirus quarantine is a good time to reflect in that distant past that now seems more remote than ever. I was recently working on a documentary film about German filmmaker Peter Wenschink, whose life was drastically changed by the Spanish flu of 1918. To be honest, his life was probably also greatly affected by the outcome of World War I and the revolution sweeping Berlin that same year. The stars were most definitely not aligned for Peter at the time. He was eight years old. To protect Peter from the revolution, his mother kept him home where he will be safe from the riots and the bullets. And to protect him from the virus, she later shipped him to join his father in the Swiss Alps. I'm thinking of Peter and how his life would have changed after that first experience abroad in a life later defined by a constant exiles prompted by the fascist regimes in Germany, Spain and in Argentina. The story of Peter Weinschenk reminds me that the Spanish flu of 1918 preceded the rise to power of authoritarian regimes from Italy, Italian fascist, to Asian nationalism. And even here in America, with the rise of anti-Semitism and the draconian measures against immigration and individual liberties. The political sphere became exacerbated with anti-capitalist rhetoric where corruption and civil liberties were embodied in one single argument to favor the growth of fundamentalist views. Much of the same is happening today in Brazil, also in Argentina, my country birth. But how much of that is now happening right here in America? I like to use this ever-present moment, this strange time without past or future, 
to assess the risk of making decisions that will ultimately redefine the way we are, the way we feel and engage with others in our community. I am not concerned with toilet paper. I know what to do if I run out of toilet paper. What I am concerned with is with the President of the United States replacing his toilet paper with the Constitution of the United States. I know we have a future as long as we use the present to rethink the past and move forward. That's Eduardo Montes Bradley, a filmmaker who lives in Ivy. If you want to contribute a story, please send me an email to wordcast at gmail.com. You can even record something on your phone and attach it to that message to wordcast at gmail.com. I'm looking for your thoughts, your sound, your stories, your documentation of this COVID-19 pandemic. Please send it all my way. That's it for this installment. Thanks for listening, and there will be more soon. I'm Sean Tutts. Thank you.